Welcome to A Good Technologist, a podcast about how innovators are using technology to make our society a better place in Asia and across the world. This podcast is brought to you by Better.sg, a movement to drive tech for good based in Singapore. We believe that collaborations across disciplines and diverse people can help technology drive better social outcomes. My name is Rovik and I'm your host today. Today's guests are Desiree and Zikun. Desiree and Zikun are part of the team behind 2BU, the mobile game that helps dismantle stereotypes, reduce prejudice, and ultimately foster greater empathy and inclusiveness among Singaporeans. The game was one of the winners for MCCY's Mission Unite Hackathon and has been published on various media, including The Straits Times, Business Times, and Tamil Morrison. Today, we are going to hear from two major players from the award-winning game on how the team navigated the delicate and sensitive topics of race and identity, encouraged introspection and empathy in real life by the players that they are focusing on and in turn contributing to a higher cultural sensitivity as a nation. Desiree and Zikun, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. We're so happy to be here. Before we jump into it, I think it's always useful to get a bit of an introduction. So my name is Sukhan. I lead the 2BU project. So I mainly work on the design portion. And in the early parts, when we were still setting up the project, I sort of helped out with the research, uh, set up the team, the structures and the roles. And I think that has been fundamental to I think our success. And I'll talk more about that later. And then fun fact, I was actually brought into the project by Desiree. So nice segue to Desiree's introduction. Yeah, I'm Desiree and I'm currently the story editor for 2BU. In the early stages of the project, I was involved in the UI design over the course of the project. I've taken a lot more interest in the content and editing of the content. From what we've seen online, 2BU looks like one of those really cool, like choose your own adventure sort of games. I remember Mm. getting a lot of Facebook ads back in the day of like dating sim sort of walkthrough games. And this kind of reminds me about it. But how would you describe 2B? What would you say is the game all about? In the early days, I remember we had a lot of discussions back and forth what exactly it should be like. And I know that some of the early discussions, some members were very passionate about making it a live simulator. So we would do things like we would actually track uh, say how much money you had and then after each decision maybe it impacts your your monetary resources or like your social status and things like that i think it was through a lot of discussions and prototyping where we slowly got to where we have right now i think with a lot of dating sims and life simulators this is end goal right that's like maybe one ending is better than another and that's something that we wanted to deliberately design our game not to have that. The goals of the game is to get people to empathize with our choices, right? And so certain choices might maybe in the PC world not be the correct choice. But we didn't want to have value judgment today. We wanted people to empathize with each maybe action or decision and to really understand where different people were coming from. So we really felt that if we had certain good endings and certain bad endings, we were going against that central goal. And so that's why we moved it. Yeah, it's more like a visual novel. I like the term visual novel because it is really interactive storytelling element that comes through. Could you give us a peek into some of the main characters or some of the main storylines within 2BU? Currently, the game carries four characters. So we have Nadia, who's a Malay Muslim, Aman Singh, who's a Punjabi Sikh, who's an expiring actor, and then we have Ravi, who's an Indian Hindu engineering student. And then the latest character we have out is Zihao, who's the Singaporean Chinese gamer. These are all very diverse characters. And 
it was important for us not to give the impression that we're taking on any particular side or, or have any leanings in particular or biases uh, against or for a certain group. First of all, it's interactive fiction. So it's creative writing applied concretely as a teaching tool. And in this case, it's dealing with difficult conversations or racial attitudes. For me, I feel that this project tackling such subjects, it's showing how essential fiction is as a space for people to reflect their actions and background, not just without feeling judged, but also feeling understood. So it was important for us to have this diversity of characters to provide that space there. I think we were truly lucky to have a very passionate and talented set of writers from Singlet Station. So they took the insights from the research very seriously and then mapped out all these characters that stayed faithful to the specificities of the actual story. So for example, in Nadia's story, you would see the struggle in Nadia worrying about whether wearing a hijab would change Gavin's perception of her and things like mixing halal and non-halal utensils. So all these are small but very significant quandaries that potentially make or break a relationship. So this is especially when they accumulate and they go unaddressed. And things like that are really difficult to talk about. There's, there's not really a, a medium to actually freely express these opinions without fear of... Uh, perhaps saying something offensive or, or the fear of being judged. So to me, interactive fiction provided that particular medium for people to feel validated, first of all. Let's say if you, you were Gavin and you were Chinese Christian and then you have all these little things that might offend Nadia, for example. Nadia, Nadia might not be okay with it, but uh, you as Gavin don't really know or are not really aware that what you're doing might make her uncomfortable and things like that. It's all these small things that women players are aware of. And I think in the reflections, it was really interesting because you could see people empathizing with Nadia, even though they're not Malay Muslim. I could see it bridging all these perspectives together precisely because people don't feel judged. This is bringing up to me probably one of the biggest ideas within the race and religion dialogue, right? Which is that actually a lot of the conversations that people want to have or need to have is not really about your big R sort of like race issues it's not like you know we need to discriminate or something like that but it's really in the day-to-day -day, right how do we live with each other how do we recognize that uh different communities have different sort of considerations different boundaries and actually then how do we create common space how do we expand the common space for us to live with each other and i think these stories are really dealing with that day-to-day -day, right it's basically saying mm -hmm. actually there's a lot of stuff even in how you interact with one another that can actually affect the lived experience of, of folks in our community. I want to talk a bit about the project itself. And what, what I'm really excited about is that this project was actually something that came out from Better.SG. It was built solely through volunteers' resources and time. Can you give us a bit of a backstory into how the project came about and how the team sort of came together. So the idea for interactive fiction as a medium was first conceived by Gaurav. So actually, he was the one who had come up with that proposal and he was showcasing it in one of the Better SG meetings. When I saw it, I was really excited because basically it's creative writing and um, I majored in literature and, you know, coming out of the workforce, it's very rare to see fiction being utilized as a tool for anything, really. And I felt that if there was this usefulness for fiction in driving social impact, then that was something I'm totally on board for. He also needed a UX lead. And I was discussing it with Zukun and Zukun was on board with it. And I am just really, really happy, you know, that Zukun has decided to come on and lead this project. Zukun, we can hear your story of how you came on board because I know that the project has 
up to 100 volunteers. You know, what drew you to the project and can you share what do you think drew others to the project as well? Part of my interest as a UX designer or experience designer is about using fun experiences right to create impact in the world i sort of was doing a lot of like illustrations game concept art uh, before i switched into ux right so on my own like free time i i love creating like worlds and like different characters and like seeing their conflicts and learning from how they struggle through uh, the obstacles that they face i think this project was in many ways utilizing all of these skills that I had, but never really got to apply into, say, a commercial project or, say, a, I guess, a more professional sort of setting. So I think that was a very good fit. What I think draws a lot of our volunteers, I think a lot of people have come on board because of the idea. I think a lot of the projects we see in Better.sg, they're very functional in a way. It's always about, say, an app or, say, a service. Uh, but with this, it's a game that is very different from a lot of the digital products that we see out there. And so I think that gets people interested. The topic itself, which is about race, racism, and then also uh, empathy and how do you address discrimination? How do you get people to understand uh, each other? If you feel strongly about this, then you would be motivated to join this project. And I think that's what we do see in quite a lot of our uh, volunteers. So within the Better.sg terminology, right, you guys and the 2BU project is at stage four, which is the scale-up stage. And given the fact that you guys started around, I want to say two years ago, right, or a year and a half ago, uh, that's actually an incredible sort of journey. You guys have probably overcome a lot of different issues, including some of the classic ones with a volunteer project, encouraging engagement, getting funding, looking at sustainability. Can you give us some highlights on some of the key challenges your team had and how you overcame them? When we first started, we had this grand vision of 10 characters and we were sort of pulling along. And because this is a volunteer project, things get done at a very slow pace. You're basically dependent on how much time your volunteers have, how uh, motivated they feel, right? So we were sort of dragging along. At that point in time, Gaurav was leading the project with me. And I think he did something that really sped up the process, right? And so he said, look, guys, so this is, I think, maybe sometime in March. I want us to ship something out in July 31st, which how many date. When somebody puts a deadline in the sand... July 21st. 21st, sorry. When someone puts a deadline in the sand, right, then suddenly you don't have forever to go on your project. Suddenly you have something to work towards, right? And then I think that time pressure gives people deadlines and gives people accountability, it gives people that sort of sense of, oh, something's forming together and I need to get this done or else we would not be able to release for this golden opportunity. Did we, in the end, reach 10 characters? No, right? I think as Desiree said just now, uh, we are like two years in and we have about four characters. Our aim now is to release six characters by July. But what that deadline of July 21st last year gave us was that by then, I think we had Nadia and we had Aman's first chapters out. And so I think in a way, that's a very tech sort of uh, mindset of like, hey, we're going to ship and uh, we will just ship whatever we can ship on that day. We use the term visual novel. And when most people think about novels, they do think of a complete story, right? With, mm, with yes. a clear ending in mind. But it does sound like it was very intentional, first of all, to not have a prescribed ending, but then to also say, well, you know, let's discover the story as it goes on. Let's put out a chapter first. Let's see what's happening. And then, will work on the, the subsequent chapters over time, which I think is is definitely a very different approach to storytelling. But 
it also seems like your engagement was maintained as you sort of put out these chapters. One of the challenges, at least from what I, I observed from the writing team, was really how to map out the insights from the research accurately and naturally into the stories. All writers came with different strengths and also not all of them had experience writing in a medium where it's uh, clicking through sustaining the player's attention. So some of the stories uh, read well on paper, but when it was translated into the game, the tension sagged a little, and that was when we had to work on revising and tightening the story. It does look like you guys were able to really pull together the different components of the product. I want to unpack these stories because I think these stories are really the core of To Be You. When you go through these games, I mean, I've played them, right? When you go through these games and you look at the backstories and the relationships, you can really feel that they were very intentionally written and that they were based on real stuff that happens in Singapore, right? And I think that's an amazing sort of thing to have out there because within the stuff that people can do in Singapore, such a game really adds a very different type of value, right? It's not too gamey where you know, you lose sort of the the message, but it's also not too preachy where you kind of have that level of distance between you actually adopting some of the lessons from it. So I want to know, how did the team decide on the characters within the game and the narratives for those characters to to embark on? Okay, so it was very heavily based on the one-on-one interviews that we've conducted. And um. I remember uh, conducting one of the first research interviews and it was an account of a Malay Muslim and Chinese Christian relationship. Interfaith relationships are a subject where it's very sensitive. Personally, I haven't really heard a lot of opinions regarding the struggles that come with it. You know, so the insights from that interview really illustrated not just the dilemmas involving, let's say, potential questions of whether one party converts or the differences between the faiths, but also where in point each partner stands with regard to their own journeys in faith. For example, Nadia's story mirrors all those issues. The writer was really, really careful and very meticulous in documenting all those little interactions. So there was a lot of nuance and there were a lot of layers to that story. All those examples in that story provided that space for discussion and a lot more understanding of where both parties are coming from. You know, so I say that paradoxically, the specificities in the story are what make it universal and relatable. And can you give an example of some of the nuances that you had to pack in? For example, Nadia. Nadia is a Malay Muslim student who aspires to be a doctor, but she's studying in a Christian Chinese dominated school. Definitely something that actually exists and that there are people like that in Singapore. In the initial stages, when I think we were coming up with the prototypes, and I, I remember discussing with Zukun about, okay, in, in the example, will it be safe to actually you know, put in a, a relationship where it's a Muslim-Christian dynamic? And we were pretty cautious of that. But at the same time, I also felt that, well, if we're not going to use this space to put out topics that are potentially incendiary to certain sections or potentially uh, misunderstood, then it's not really serving its full purpose. I think. Uh, we were really interested in seeing how far we could take it in terms of getting people to relate without reacting at first based on the volley of reflections that we received voluntarily so the writer herself has done a really good job in illustrating uh, something that is potentially contentious. A lot of this came from research, right? And I did sociology for my degree. And so I'm a huge uh, believer in research. And I think one of the reasons why our stories really resonate with people is because of just the amount of research that we did uh, beforehand, right? I was telling my team, we have to go out, we have to speak to people, and we need to then translate those insights 
into the stories, right? This could be content ideas for writers. This could be teams for writers. And I think the amount of research, the amount of knowledge building for the team to uh, understand what people's experiences are, and then being able to faithfully and respectfully replicate in the stories have re- has really paid off, not just in terms of the story, but in terms of handling, I guess, criticism. We have gotten a fair share of criticisms. I think there have been people who felt like, oh, you shouldn't be talking about this, or just by talking about this, right, uh, you have maybe uh, upset at me or offended me. Our response to that is really, look, this is what is happening out there. And so if you're upset with reality, as with a lot of the products, this is for the rest of the community also. If you do your research, then I think it becomes very difficult for people to blame you because what you can do is point to the research. And I know that beyond just research, there was also a lot of care that went into the characters, right? Because there is a lot of attention to detail from the costumes and attires, the sort of uh, portrayals of these characters. Can you tell us about the processes you put in place in order to make sure that you did representation right? I knew very strongly we needed somebody. We needed sort of like a voice of reason or basically a voice who would hold us accountable, right? So for instance, if we made a decision as a team to do something that was potentially uh, disrespectful and we just didn't see it, we wanted to give this person full power uh, to tell us that we were wrong and to veto the, uh, any decisions that we were going to make that were going to lead us down the wrong path, right? And so uh, that's why I think if you look at the team structure, it's not just research, it's research and ethics. The point of research is not just to educate your team. You do have an ethical responsibility to do right to your participants. So when you interview people, we talk about as an interviewer, you have the responsibility to protect your uh, interviewees. And I think an extension of that is you have... In, in our team's case, we gave our researcher, I guess, the responsibility to make sure that their stories are rightfully represented throughout the stories, throughout the art, into the final product, right? So basically, for each character, we had what you call sensitivity readers who would ensure that the tone and the voice are accurate because for the writers, when they write something, they don't necessarily come from backgrounds that fully parallel to the characters that they are writing. So I'll give Zi Hao as an, as an example. So Zi Hao is a Chinese Singaporean gamer who comes from a culturally Chinese and dialect speaking background. We had a writer who who is a very avid gamer and she was able to come up with this very visceral, very, very real uh, scenarios of his gaming and his interactions with his teammates. Um, but the thing that we also needed to make sure was that the, the way that the characters spoke and, and the narration, it fit the house background, which was a Chinese background. You know, he spoke with a very wrong uh, Singlish accent. And we had a sensitivity reader for that who, who has helped very much in really refining the character. While the story was creative, we really had to ensure that it was accurate. When we were selecting the writers, we also try to ensure that in terms of, say, ethnicity or background, we try and make sure that the writers match the characters as much as possible. So for instance, Nadia's writer is herself Malay Muslim female. Aman's original writer was also a Sikh. That was one of the things we put in place, right? And again, I want to stress, there's no like one-stop that you do because what if that one stop film? So for the game art, the writers, when they are finished with the script, the writers have to create this thing which I call a visual reference guide. We wanted a way for our writers to communicate to the artists what 
some of the characters would look like. Really, it's a PowerPoint deck. And every time you have a character, you sort of state what you think the character would look like or what you had imagined them to be, but also certain articles of clothing, right? Because most of our illustrators, as much as we wanted to try and get um, people from, say, the same background, sometimes it was quite difficult. Uh, so we wanted to make sure we had all the nuances uh, captured. I remember, say, for uh, Ravi's mom, we were actually arguing what she would be wearing, what would be appropriate for her character. Because I think the thing about representation and game art is we're so visual that, you know, I, I think as humans, we have evolved to just decode um, how other people look, right? And, after, and, and say pieces of clothing. And so that one character, you get a one shot, okay? You get a one shot that that first second when somebody sees the character, they need to be able to read very quickly and understand who is this character, right? And so we need to make sure that we got all these details right. That's awesome. One of the most important things, at least to me, is that sort of intention with setting up checkpoints, right? And, and processes and making sure that at any point, there is sort of a, a person who can raise the flag and say, hey, Let's make sure that we're doing this right. Let's make sure that we're looking after the stories that we are putting out there and making sure that we represent the communities that, that these stories are supposed to serve, right? And so I think it's something a lot of us can probably think a lot more of because in the world of tech, in the world of building stuff in tech, you often hear the concept of moving fast and really trying to put stuff out there. And I think with what you were sharing, Zipun, initially about like actually having something out there as soon as possible by Rachel Hamite. What should also be taken together with that is the concept of, yes, you you have a deadline, you work towards it, you release something, but you also make sure that you have the processes in place so that when you do get to the deadline, actually you've done everything that you need to do. So I think these two ideas sort of need to go hand in hand. And and that's really sort of the world of of not just conversations and race and religion, but I think broadly in any sort of social impact project, you need to really be mindful of the communities that you're serving. Let's bring it to today, right? The game has received tons of playthroughs since it's launched. What's next for 2BU? What's in the future? I think when we first released it, we were thinking about, oh, this would be a game you release on social media. And then we see the response from that. But we're also in talks with several uh, youth organizations uh, around Singapore of possibly bring it in as one of the training tools that they can use to engage uh, young people, the different communities that they run. So I think off the top of my head, we are talking to One People, NAC, NYC, and a few other organizations. So what we hope to do is sometime in uh, July, so maybe Racial Harmony Day again, uh, we'll be able to hand over the full product with six different characters uh, to some of these organizations so that they can really uh, bring this on to uh, the next mile, right? Because what we've done is we built a product, but unfortunately, I think um, we might not have the stamina to see it through and we don't have that outreach to see it through, right? And now it's about running the next lap with uh, our future partners. I'm just reflecting about the journey of 2BU, and I think it's definitely a very inspiring one for a lot of people within the Better SG community, especially for those who are looking at sensitive topics, who are looking at bringing, I guess, a new perspective into maybe spaces that have already had a lot of people trying to, to provide interventions or trying to provide a helping hand, right? Because 2BU took something very different and it took a storytelling approach and really brought in a fresh voice. I think I'm really happy to be able to chat with both of you, Zikun and Desiree, about this 
Now, before we close, I always like to ask our guests a standard question. In one word, what would you say is the future of tech? Well, in one word, um, I would say it's humanity. Ooh. My word is dystopian. It's incumbent on all of us, right, to keep pushing forward a future that we believe. Despite all the craziness, all the possible dystopian in the world, I believe it's important that we keep pushing on to do the good that we believe should be out in this world. The complexity of tech, right? Why better does she exist to really push out some of the positive aspect of how tech can help lower barriers and, and address issues. For folks who want to find out more about 2BU, you can check out the game on 2BU.sg. I know the game also has a Discord channel and a Facebook page, so you can definitely follow them on these channels and be part of the community. Uh, but Zikun and Desiree, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey with us. Thank you Thanks so much. much. Awesome. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Good Technologist. If you like what we are doing, you can always find out more on our website, better.sg. And subscribe to the podcast via your typical channels such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. This podcast was produced by Grace So and edited by myself, Rovic Robin. Our email address is goodtech at better.sg. Let us know what you think.